from the Center for Careers, Life, and Service at Grinnell College. You're listening to Going Forth. I'm Nicholas Lampietti. And you already know that I'm Meredith Benjamin. You just heard us talk to Nathan Club. Or you didn't, in which case you should go listen. Who ran for public office during his senior year at Grinnell and later for city council in Atlanta, all with the hope of making his communities a better place. But what does change making look like beyond running for elected office? Forced to be reckoned with, Dixon Romeo, class of 2016, dedicates his life to racial and economic justice in Chicago through grassroots organizing, a passion for affordable housing, and an overarching vision to make his community a better place for the underrepresented. Today, he reflects on his time at Grinnell and how it pushed him to pursue a career in social justice full-time. He also details the incredible work his organizations are doing, why it matters, and how you too can make a difference. Stay with us. Wonderful. Well, good morning, Dixon. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Of course, of course. Nice to be here. Can you start by telling us what is United Working Families and can you tell us what your role is with that organization? Sure. Yeah. So I think I wear a lot of different hats doing different aspects of this work. And like UWF is like my primary like day job, right? So United Working Families is trying to create a political organization in the city of Chicago that puts people first, right? So it's a amalgamation, I don't know if that's the right word, of like community groups, IPOs, individual members, and like unions that have come together to, you know, try and change the shape of what the political landscape in Chicago looks like. Um, in addition to that work, we started a group in my neighborhood, which is you know separate from UWF, but we started a group in my neighborhood called Not Me We, and we do, you know, mutual aid, education, and like tenant organizing. And then through that organization, we are also part of the Obama CBA coalition. So it's a coalition of community groups in Chicago around where the Obama Presidential Center is going to be fighting for protections uh, against displacement. And then in addition to that, I work with I'm a political director for a state representative, Lakeisha Collins, and we do, you know, stuff on the west side of the city. Uh, so I think, so those are like the different hats. And so I think for me, it's really, it's really fascinating to like, you know, work with an elected official on their political side, to be starting and working in a really grassroots community organization and work in UWF, which is like a, you know, what's trying to be, right, a party building process and platform. What does UWF do? So I think that's what UWF does, right? Like we do issue-oriented campaigns, right, that affect or that that strive to, you know, affect the material conditions of, you know, black and brown folks in the city, the poor, you know, working class, working families, right? Um, In addition, you know, we also engage heavily in the political process, right? So we have nine aldermen on the 50-person city council. We have, you know, a lot of state reps, county commissioners, um, and really trying to put candidates in office that are centering and putting uh, people's voices first um, and fighting for a really progressive uh, values. Can you give us a quick definition of what grassroots means to you and means in the wider context of political movements? Obviously, like the political director work with Rep Collins is, is not, I don't want to, that is grassroots in a sense, but not really, right? Um, but really, I think, to be honest with you, like grassroots is one of those terms, it's just like progressive, right? Like there's no actual definition or like, <laughs> you know, for what that means, like depending on what folks want it to mean. Um, I think generally though, when people talk about grassroots, they mean like driven by and run by, you know, working class folks. Um, that is like a movement, you know, that is on the ground 
kind of, I guess, is my sense of it. And I think UWF has elements of that. I think Not Me We, which is the separate thing that I do, is also is like very much grounded in that um, because it's, you know, it's a community org. And it's like, if you don't live there, you can't participate, right? So you, you got it. You know, what's more important to look at is like what the political lens or framework is for folks, which I think like go to, to tie back to, I think my experience at Grinnell, right, is something that, you know, I got from my classes, right? Um, I think about, you know, it's funny, I took some political science classes and so shout out, I, I'd be remiss, I got to shout out Professor Barbara Trish. And honestly, I learned a lot about uh, perspective in studying for, I think my, I was an economics major. And really I'd say like folks like, you know, like Professor Bru Keith Bruley were really foundational in terms of like looking at analysis, right? Like I remember we had, I was so, I took intro to economics in 2000, I think 16, right? And so I think, uh, Mitt Romney and Obama were running against each other. And we did some, like we were in the intro econ class and we we're like doing the microeconomics section and someone made an argument about something. And Bruley was like, you know, I'm not arguing one way or the other politically wise, but like what you're saying is like, is a Republican, you know, economic argument, right? And so like, you know, cause really challenging folks to like, I think to look at how those things connect made me then, and I think this is the big part about my Grinnell experience as it pertains to learning is like, I was not a fantastic student at Grinnell. Um, uh, some would argue I was a bad student, but towards the, <laughs> towards the end, I would, I really, 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 especially my last like two semesters, I really, really engaged with faculty and with students and with like the library, man. Like I would, you know, it, I was just thinking about stuff. I was feeding myself and then I would just go and look stuff up. So like moments like that, you know, popped into my head, you know, two, three laters about Bruley and then having him as my economics advisor. We would just talk about, you know, what do I want to do next and all types of stuff. So that's kind of how I got into looking at things, I think, from less of like a surface level view and more about like what's the actual orientation or like the lens of it. So that's how I got to, that's, that's, huh. that's, that frames my question around like the grassroots stuff. We'd love to hear even more about your experience at Grinnell. I got a really, I would say robust education in terms of how do you deal with institutions at Grinnell College. Um, I think, you know, coming into Grinnell, you know, I'm from South Shore, from the South Side of Chicago. I went to Kenwood Academy, which is a good school. You know, I had a good ACT score. My grades sucked in the beginning of high school because um, I was dealing with a lot of family stuff. And then towards the end, they were great, right? Um, so I got into Grinnell and I immediately struggled academically. In retrospect, right, it wasn't because I wasn't smart or because I didn't care, coupled with like my learning disability, coupled with like constantly dealing with financial troubles at home. Like I just did terrible. And I think the two things that helped me turn that around was I think starting to do, you know, student government work and like concerned Black students um, and then digging deep into how I learned and figuring out how to learn, right? Um, and so, again, like Keith Bruley, you know, Raynard's not around anymore, but he was the president of the college at the time. Right. He was really helpful to me. We had a conversation once in his office that was very intense, at least coming from my end, but he was really just trying to like help me see like look like I've worked with you doing student government stuff so like you're clearly smart like I've seen it but like I need you to apply that to the classroom stuff so, like find the gap like what's going on and then I think like Angela Voos and Belinda Baucus I would recommend if anyone wants to just be better at learning you should go see Belinda like even if you got straight A's go see Belinda so I think one I, I got to see very clearly as a person right what it feels like to be an institution that isn't like necessarily set up for you to succeed and is very, and puts the onus, a lot of the onus on you to do that, which again is like part of how academia works. Um, but then also 
um, if, right, institutions like Grinnell, right, are really intentional about bringing folks in from different backgrounds, that means that you have to have really, really, really intentional practices around how do you help folks bridge that gap, right? Doing student government, I really got to wrestle with the institution as part of SGA, but also concerned Black students. I think then like dealing with the institution, you, you saw the perils of reform, right? Like you see how certain things like kept cycling, coming around consistently and consistently. And it made me sharpen my analysis around like, okay, how do we actually look at the source of stuff versus like the surface level, right? I think being a part of SGA and dealing with that was interesting and just seeing how responding to institutions, right, is which is part of what I would consider, you know, what you do as an organizer or an activist. I think there's a distinction there that I'll talk about later. You know, I remember Mike Latham, Dean Mike Latham, I, got, I learned so many lessons just from dealing with him as a administrator. Like the, like the way it went, nah, like, no, I see, I, I tell him this, the way he would like, people would be mad about something and Mike Latham like, okay, well, we can mute about it just after spring break. I'm like, no one's gonna be mad anymore, right? Um, and that's an intentional tactic, right? We had a meeting and I remember Mike talking to people before the meeting. And I was like, oh, okay. So like, you shouldn't be having fresh arguments in the meeting. If you're trying to move it somewhere, you got to talk to folks beforehand. Like even when we used to, we did a, we did a series of like town halls around student life and services and stuff. And even the way Mike, like, how they wanted to structure down halls, thinking about how people are gonna receive stuff and respond to stuff. That was definitely the early seeds of me learning about like organizing. And so you said that there is a distinction between organizing and what was the other thing that you said? And you said you wanted to go more into that. Yeah, I just think, and, just, and this is just an organizer thing in general. So like activism is like me, Dixon Romeo says this thing and I am going to move this thing forward, you know, by whatever means, right? Like activism is like, um, at least when you look at it from a structural organizing base lens, is like one person moving a thing. For me as an organizer, right, my theory of change is that like, you know, it takes uh, masses, of, you know, the masses of people, right, to move stuff, no matter what you're trying to do. Um, and you can't do that unless you are in community or in organization with folks, right? And folks have to be a part of that organization. And an organization has to have a clear mission and vision and like tactics and, you know, guidelines and rules, you know, stuff like that. The whole thing about organizing is like, we acknowledge from the, from the jump, you can't do it alone. And so that is why you have to organize folks. Like, so for example, you know, with UWF, when we did uh, we worked with, you know, parents and teachers and community members in North Lawndale, which is a neighborhood on the west side of the city. Um, and two years ago, the city tried to essentially, with working with another community group, right, they tried to advance a plan that would open a new school. But in order to do that, you would have to close three of the existing schools. Chicago, if you all don't know, had the massive, the biggest school closure in history at the time in 2013. If Dixon Romeo showed up and said, this is bad, or one or two of the parents showed up and said, this is bad, the schools probably would have closed. But instead, right, we had, we made a coalition, right, and we were organized and over 250 parents and teachers and community members called the mayor, you know, showed up, had rallies, had protests, did, did all the things, right, um, that, that led to the school not being closed, right? And so, I think that's the difference between activism and organizing, right? If you're an organizer, you're never walking anywhere or doing anything by yourself and rarely are you at the front of it. Right? I've never thought about it in that way, but that makes total sense. And I really appreciate that, that insight. Throughout the conversation, you've mentioned a lot of the issues that you 
fight for and work on? And I'm wondering if we could sort of... Yeah, yeah. Zooming out, what are the, the issues that matter to you? And what are, what are your goals in the work that you do? You know, I think with, with UWF, right, like we, I think we have a pretty big platform of stuff. But since I've worked there, there's kind of been three big kind of, I think, things I've worked on. So I think one is like education work. So obviously, right, fighting these school closures in North Lawndale, which were successful. I think we've done a work on environmental injustice. So I did, I worked with, right, the Stop General Iron campaign. So I was a part of that campaign where um, the city essentially, again, Rahm Emanuel, struck a deal with General Iron, right, which changed their name to RMG and then Southside Recycling or whatever. But they um, had a metal shredding plant that was on the north side of the city in Lincoln Park, right, which is a very affluent white neighborhood in the city. Folks in that community wanted to push, you know, wanted General Iron out because of the environmental impact, right? There have been fires, you know, smokestacks that go over to people with deteriorates to air quality, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the city decided instead of telling them they can't operate in the city anymore, they were going to move it from Lincoln Park and move it to the southeast side of the city, which is basically has been the city's environmental dumping ground for a lot of years and is mostly Latinx, but also black, you know, a pretty significant black population on the southeast side as well, right? So, and, you know, folks did a 30-day hunger strike. You know, we did a bunch of other stuff, um, you know, obviously lobbying and other things, but eventually we got the city to deny General Iron the permit, right, to allow them to basically move this facility facility and do that operations. Another thing we did last year was the Right to Recovery campaign, which was, you know, the city, the federal government with the American Rescue Plan under Joe Biden gave cities basically more or less a blank check to kind of like deal with the effects of COVID, right? Um, and so when does it happen with the CARES Act under President Trump, the city of Chicago took, geez, it's either 46 or 64, either way, very big number. They took a significant portion of the money that was in the discretionary funds that could have gone towards anything and put it towards policing. Coming off of 2020 or during 2020, right, when we have like a national movement and uprising around I think in some circles, right, it was around police accountability with George Ford and Breonna Taylor, but a, a, a significant of folks, especially in the city, were pushing for either abolition or defunding of the police, right? Really right. radical changes um, or, or destruction of that system. And to put money towards that when you could have put it towards feeding more people, towards housing people, towards getting the, you know, towards more COVID testing at the time. This was before the vaccine. And then, you know, vaccine distribution, all these different things that could have gone to, and they went to policing. So we knew when the city was getting this $1.8 billion for um, the rescue plan, we wanted to really fight and make sure that communities' voices were heard and folks were pushing for that. And so we came up with, you know, the Right to Recovery Coalition. It was a coalition of community groups, elected officials, unions, you know, individual folks. You know, we hit the streets and canvassed and talked to people. Um, we created our own plan. We wrote our own piece of legislation, allocated where all that $1.8 billion would go to. Um, and we put it towards, I mean, everything you can think of, right, to having, you know, a version of universal child care, right, that would be spread out across the city and zones towards all different types of money in housing, whether it's rapid rehousing, uh, permanent supportive housing for folks, funding for additional support, uh, affordable housing towards alternatives to policing, right? So like violence prevention, money for the treatment, not trauma pilot, which is instead of, you know, having police officers show up when folks are in distress, um, having medical professionals show up uh, without police, right? Um, 
because we know those situations often don't end well for the community, but especially the folks who need help in those moments. I mean, even like everything you could think of we had in that legislation, right? And ultimately it didn't pass, but a lot of what we were pushing for, like the UB, universal basic income pilot, like money towards different housing stuff, like additional funding for our city's public health clinics and public health clinic workers did end up in the budget because of the work we did pushing that and putting some pressure on the mayor, I think, to respond how she was spending the money. And so those are the big, those are the three biggest things. I think, so that's my UWF stuff, not UWF stuff with not me, we, I mean, I think really, I have a very strong passion around housing and tenant organizing, because I think that the reality is, is that most folks are overburdened by their rent. And even, and we know, right, again, this goes back to Brunel, right, just studying what happened during the financial crisis. The, the economic incentive is not to build homes anymore, it's to build rental properties, right, because you can increase your profit right. margins every year. And they, you know, they take less space, right? Um, so you don't have to fight over land as much, right? Um, you know, I just talked about Lincoln Park and um, the southeast side of Chicago, right? And I'll ask you, right, which neighborhood do you think it's easier to buy a property or cheaper to buy a property or a piece of land in? I mean, probably not Lincoln Park. Right, right, right. So if, if, if all, and again, like I took a ton of econ class, I know economics is more complex than that, but at its core, right? Firms operate to get profit and those firms can get profit. Basically one, right, it's one way, right? You buy low, you sell high, or you, whatever you're producing has to cost less than what you're selling it for so you can make money, right? So if it's cheaper for me to buy a home in a poor neighborhood, then I have more of an incentive, right? To buy a home in that neighborhood, right? And I want to make money. So I'm not gonna sell it at a rate that's, you know, the neighborhoods where I live in like South Shore, the median income is like $26,000. Um, so if I'm buying a home and I'm selling it, I'm not selling it for someone who can afford that home there. There's a really clear connection between, you know, I would say like economics and like the housing market, because that's the that's the real pressure. And unlike issues like policing, unlike issues like that most workers face, unlike issues in education, there is no real, um, I would argue, like workforce that is a part of this profit driving motive. Right. Like it's usually landlords. They pay someone the super in a building and they may contract other stuff out, but it's literally just because I own this building, right? I'm going to charge whatever I want for this profit, right? You know, during the Not Me We stuff, I really cut my teeth doing tenant organizing, right? Working with folks in buildings who are getting displaced, right? Whose landlords are abusing them, right? Dealing with slumlords and going in and working with tenants and helping them, you know, fight back, right? Um, and get the changes they needed to get in their properties or, you know, force the landlord to sell the building or force the city to shut the building down and make the landlord pay to relocate folks. Whatever, whatever we end up at in that campaign, that's part of that work. And to be honest with you, of all the things I've done, I'm most passionate about the tenants I, we've been able to work with and empower, right? You know, in thinking about that, a lot of what you've talked about has had to do with economic inequality. You know, you mentioned that most people are overburdened by their rent. And, and so, I think it raises an interesting point, which is that the best work is rarely the work that is best fiscally compensated. And um, these financial barriers can often prevent people from really focusing on what they want to be doing. With that reality in mind, you know, how can a person, how can a Grinnellian turn you know, a passion for social justice and for the issues that they care about into a viable career path? I, th I think if folks want to organize, there is a job 
in organizing that pays close enough for what they want. Um, and I think I'm really grateful that UWF obviously it's, you know, it's a lot of work, but sees the value in, you know, good organizing and what that means. And so I think I make, I think I make good enough. I, I, hey, I, I got friends who were Grinnell who are also econ majors who have other jobs and don't make as much as I do. So, you know, I, I put that in perspective, but I think like, to be frank, I mean, I think you can, I think you can find an organizing job where you're making 50, 60 K or more. I think it's, it's folks just have to want to do it and, and get good at it. It's a craft, right? Just like anything else. I think that, um, I feel pretty strongly, obviously, because I do it. But I think that I think organizing is the hardest job you can do because I think it requires you to have a mastery of so many different aspects of things and the margin of error is essentially non-existent. Like you can't make them. I mean, you can make mistakes. You will make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time. But the it's like the, the margin error is not the same and, you know it's probably like you know it's up there with like surgery and stuff I, I think because I think right what it requires you to do is you have to look people in the eye and get them to trust you that's number one and that's super hard and then you have to tr- get those folks who you trust to look at an issue right you have to be a teacher you have to educate folks on the issue and then you have to be a coach right you have to help people move on that issue and then you have to, when things don't go well, you have to problem set. You have to understand the political landscape, understand the legislative landscape, understand the issue, understand the solution, be able to relate that to folks in 30 seconds, because you only got 30 seconds when you're talking to somebody on the door or on the street, and then move them to action. In addition to fighting, right, if you're an organizer, if you're a good organizer, nine times out of 10, you're fighting either a really powerful business a person, right, an institution that has a lot of resources that this demands, right? It's like every fight you're in, you're David versus Goliath. And you have to constantly do all these things and be on time, call people back, right? It's, it's a very tough job. Um, and like you said, like you're an organizer, you don't get an assistant or anything, like it's on you. Also, I mean, I, I think also I got to get out of the, like it's, I probably shouldn't have said it's the hardest job because sh- we shouldn't rank these things. All things are hard. But you know, I think it's a challenging work, but if folks want to do it and you care about it and you're passionate, it can happen. I think to be super, super direct, um, if you want to organize, you need to think about what issue you care about and then start working with or being a part of organizations that work on those things. And that will put you on the path, I think, to finding a job and like organizing and dealing with the financial constraints around it. Because I think, again, the financial constraints I don't think they change. I mean, based on, you know, obviously where you're coming from, where your family's from, like to me, right? Like I don't have a safety net. You know, I love my mom and dad to death. We've had ups and downs in our relationships, but they're wonderful people. And like, if I need a loan of $20,000, it ain't coming from either of them, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, it's not going to happen whether I decided to be a doctor or an organizer. Um, so for me, I just had to take that in mind when I chose the job, right? I think some, some Grinnellians are really blessed that their families do have some means, right? And if your family has some means, then maybe you can take a, a pay cut for a job. I think for those folks who don't, which I know is also a significant amount of Grinnellians, then it's just about being really smart and intentional about the work you want to do. So if you're going to get an organizing job, you're only making 60K, then that means that you have to not live within your means because that's very much pull your bootstraps up. But like, you know, just be real about, be real about what you got. I think the thing about thinking about the economic constraints for organizing, I don't think necessarily change. I think they exist with any other position that you're going to take. There's just so many really interesting things that you've said, and we are really just so grateful to you for 
having come on the podcast and for kind of sharing these, you know, both, both talking about your world and the, the politics and the work that you do and the issues and also kind of providing advice to, you know, young Grinnellians who might be listening to this. So to end it, we thought we would sort of look towards the future, both in terms of your work, how should Grinnellian get involved in these kinds of of issues and start doing some of the work you're doing. But more broadly, you know, what would you have said to your, I guess, 19, 20, 21 year old self, Dixon at Grinnell? Oh man, that's crazy. What advice would you would you give to him? What would I tell Dixon at Grinnell? Go to sleep. I don't know. I, probably <laughs> up. I feel like I stayed up way too much. I could just do stuff in the morning. <laughs> no, I think I think for Grinnellians, like I think for me, when especially when I was doing poorly at Grinnell, I felt like this was like the end of the world. And the reality of it is, is that it wasn't even close to being over. And it was really like, you know, origin story type shit, which was dope. I think in general to Grinnellians, I would say like the world we want to live in isn't going to happen just because, right? Like, I think I hate the fact that people, I think there are folks who I work with or folks who have more, uh, not more, but folks who have extremely I would say radical politics have really sharp critiques of like Dr. King, but I think in general, his like vision and like his words and his, the, the radical King himself, right, has been uh, bastardized in a lot of ways. I think people take that R.L. Mork of the universe quote as like an inherent thing, right? And that's not how it works, right? I would really push kind of like the Marx historical materialism piece, which is like things happen and we shape those conditions, right? Um, and so you know, folks can have an analysis and that's cool, but it's our work to do the work to change it, right? And so I, I feel pretty strongly that like, in my experience, a lot of Grinnellians and faculty as well are inherently have kind of a defeatist mindset, right? The world is the way it is and that sucks. Well, at least in the econ classes I was in, right? I was in a class with some d- I love those guys, but and I, I say that affectionately as a, as a d- but anyway, you know, I think, I think that, you know, folks have a defeatist mindset, like the world sucks at how it is. So let me just make some money and let me just take care of me. And I think, right, right. Like, of course you have to take care of yourself and also the world does not have to be that way. And it's not contradictory for you to satisfy your material needs and also work so that the world is a better place. Right. I think about where these issues are going. I think, you know, even at progressive institutions like Grinnell that have a big endowment that are trying and pay a lot of money, you know, shout out to Joe Bagnoli, right? Like Grinnell gave me a nice chunk of money, a lot of, a lot of loans too, but you know, a lot of, a lot of money to, to go to school there. And I think the cost keeps increasing, right? The cost of college keeps increasing. It is becoming more and more expensive to live in most major cities in the country and in most suburbs. In those suburbs where now more poor people are living, the public infrastructure is eradicating because you don't have the tax base, right? Oftentimes when they do spend that money, it's going towards these kind of like vanity projects or these mega developments that serve a couple of folks and they're seen as like economic engine drivers, but don't really do the thing and put money in poor people's hands. Nationally, we're moving to kind of like this regressive political state where we really want things to return to the way they were, right, pre-Trump and the way they were pre-Trump regardless of who the president was, suck. You know, Barack Obama, like when he got elected, my grandma cried and like the U.S. was still an imperialist nation bombing people in other countries, right? We still had the Flint water crisis. You still had the affordable housing crisis. It's going to take, uh, I think, structural change uh, to get that, right? And we have to do that work 
to move out of this like cultural and like economic capitalist system that we live in. So that's why I think the issues are going, they're going to, you know, things are going to get tough. Those are perfect conditions for folks to realize what's going on and get organized and fight back. I think another thing I tell my Grinnell self is to like actually study more. Now that I'm like, you know, I have to study on my own, right, to learn stuff. Like, you know, of course, we work with people and we have academics and folks who are really helpful when we research issues and think about policy solutions. But I got to read the shit myself and like really form critical engagement and thought. And I think that I just remember at Grinnell, there was just like a really co- a real culture around like, to a degree around like what you know, or like I'd make a strong argument that economics isn't a science, it's a philosophy. And so if I was a philosopher or Ingrid's major, you know, that's a, a, a real big gap that I need to see, right? Um, and that informs my storytelling, that informs what I write, what I read. I think when you look at places like the New York Times and other places where folks are becoming really, really critical about like how they look at issues, right? Anything from police brutality to other stuff. I think, you know, we have to eradicate right supremacy in general, but also like in the way that we learn and, and teach things, right? Um, and so I think that's just, that's a huge part of it too. I would say to younger Dixon, I would really be, then I would probably try and be vice president of academic affairs, the VPSA when I was in student government, I'd really be pushing on what are we actually teaching and engaging folks in on campus. Thank you so, so much. I know. Thank you. We really were really, honored to yeah. just have this opportunity to speak with you. Before I hop off, I got to shout out so many people. So one, okay. two, three, go. Shout out. I don't know if Chuck is still there in the grill, but shout out to Chuck, everybody in the Black Cultural Center. Shout out to Patricia Finkelman, Eric Whitaker, Angela Voos, Raynard Kington, Sarah Purcell, Sarah Purcell, best history teacher, Keith Bruley, Belinda Baucus, everybody who I engaged with at Grinnell and put up with my I'm just really appreciative. It helped me be a, a, a smart person. That is such a great way to end it. Thank I you, think Dick. I agree. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Careers, Life, and Service at Grinnell College. This episode was produced by Nicholas Lampietti. Our executive producer is Katie Kriegel. Find us online at goingforthgrinnell.com. Follow us on Instagram at goingforthpodcast and on Twitter at goingforthpod. Listen to more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Go forth, Grinnellian. See you next time.